And I think that that's the that's the crux of of our 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 interests as Indigenous people is how do we get those interests on the table and in in some significant way agreed to. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by my colleague, Chris Sands. He is the oat milk to my chai latte. He is the peanut butter to my toast, the avocado to my toast, maybe, Chris. Anyway, welcome, Chris. It's good to see you. Thanks, Scotty. And you're making me hungry already. (laughs) There you go. Well, listen, one of the things I love about Canusa Street is the opportunity to dive into issues, maybe dive into the deep end of issues um, that we don't necessarily think about every day in our daily work on Canada-U.S. relations. And one of the ones that you and I have been talking about on this podcast, and that is a subject uh, of very important discussions between Canada and the United States, is the Columbia River Treaty. I'm excited about our guest today. He brings a perspective uh, that is much needed and his expertise and, and his insights into the negotiations and what it's all about, I think, are something that uh, our listeners will really benefit from. So with that, Chris, let me uh, turn it over to you to introduce our guest and to reintroduce this issue, which we've talked about a couple of times, um, but we've now got a different, a different lens on it, which I think is much needed. Uh, a very much needed lens talking about the First Nations role in the Columbia River Treaty. And our guest today is fantastic. Strategist, negotiator, and spokesperson for the First Nations peoples, Nathan Matthew has focused on quality education for Aboriginal people for more than 35 years. He's a leader in the local, provincial, and national dialogue on self-determination for Aboriginal education. He served two terms as chairman of the Shuswap uh, Nation Tribal Council. Um, And he's currently the Sequemp representative to the Columbia River Treaty negotiations, which concluded its 12th round in January. So this is a long-term negotiation, and we've got somebody who's been with it since the beginning. Welcome, Chief Nathan Matthew. Maybe you can start by pronouncing all of those uh, First Nations names properly. I'm a member of the Simp First Nation, which is part of the Sequemp First Nation, which uh, is also known as the Shushwap nation. So uh, I live in a, in a First Nations uh, community. I've, I was uh, raised here and uh, went away for an education, but got a lot of experience and came back home and uh, uh, have been here since 19, 1980 or so and uh, have been very, very privileged to, to be a, a part of the representation on council to uh, do all kinds of interesting things in terms of community development, uh, moving with with the politics that, that for the nation, the Sahuab nation, and uh, being involved for, for many years in, in education developments uh, locally and nationally. And then uh, in the last couple of years, I've been really focused a lot of my attention on, on land issues Title and rights issues. So I'm I'm currently a, an advisor to the same First Nation on title and rights issues as well as uh, self government, and uh, I was selected by the 
Sahuatl chiefs of the Shushuap Nation Tribal Council to represent them in the Columbia River Treaty. So, uh, been involved with the Columbia River Treaty from about 2014, 16, and then we got more formally uh, involved as we as as our relationship evolved with the uh, national and provincial governments in terms of getting representation uh, with respect to our interests at the negotiating table. So yeah, a very, very interesting uh, environment to work in. And of course, uh, to me, the significant issue is how do we maintain a relationship with the Canadian and uh, the uh, provincial governments in this era of uh, reconciliation because in in Canada uh, the the rights and the title of uh, First Nations people or indigenous nations has really changed in the last 50 years and uh, so there's there are new opportunities for indigenous people to uh, become self self-determining self-governing uh, but all within a, a very colonial kind of environment. It, the, the laws, even though the, the the laws say the governments are going to recognize our rights and our title and our right to self-determination, that's not always as easy to do if you don't have the laws change to accommodate that. So that's, I think, where we're in that kind of environment and not just for the Columbia River Treaty, but all land and resource-based initiatives, whether it be uh, mining, forestry, water issues, air issues, climate change. So there's a quite a quite an array of areas for Indigenous people to become involved in and really become more responsible for and sort of represent uh, ourselves in a in a in a positive way and become part of uh, what we take seriously in, in terms of relationships and reconciliation. How do we reconcile the rights and the title of Indigenous people with the, the jurisdiction and the laws of the non-Indigenous people, so national, provincial, and uh, local? So, yeah, very, uh, very uh active area to be involved in and it's always changing so it's not like we have the british common law that's been there for the last thousand years we've got uh, a chance to talk about our own laws because that's what on the canadian side anyway uh the laws of indigenous people are to be respected and uh exercised and so it's been many, many years since we've had traditional laws. Of course, that goes back a couple hundred years. But now that we're, we have the opportunity to uh, represent ourselves, our our uh, core values as Indigenous people, the values that make us who we are and provide us with, the, with that identity, uh, we have now freedom to explore that, write it down, talk about it amongst ourselves. And in some cases, we're starting to write it out. And that becomes our law. And in our case, 
for the Sahuatan people. Uh, we call that our stigai, our law, our good way of living and the rules that apply to ourselves. So we're developing that. So that's all exciting. And so are the other nations. We're, uh, of course, with the Columbia Retreaty, we have the Silk, the Okanagan people, and the Tanaka, uh, those in the, in, the, in the Kootenai area. So that, that's what we have, and this is unique as well, is that the three nations have agreed to work together uh, to present a common uh, front, a common position or positions to uh, the negotiations of the Columbia River Treaty. So that's, that's not as simple as it sounds because we, we are different nations, but for the, these purposes, uh, we've agreed to work together. And uh, that, that really is a, a, a new thing. And it, it certainly provides a lot of strength when uh, we can we can move move forward in that way you know that's that's incredibly helpful context uh to put this whole this whole conversation into so i appreciate that very much and let me just start there if i could chief i i have to call you chief i have a respect for the positions you know every former member of congress and ambassador from the united states holds their title forever um so and you you have had several very distinguished positions but you mentioned you mentioned your appointment um, and your position vis-a-vis -vis negotiating Columbia River Treaty. So you talked about, key, you know, the, the three nations uh, at the table. H how are you thinking about um, the Columbia River Treaty negotiation as it stands today? Are you are British Columbia, Canada and the nations that you're representing completely aligned um, versus the United States, or is it is it more complicated than that when you think about where the where the positions are and where the equities lie? Well, I think uh, in the broad picture, the renegotiation of the Columbia River Treaty has a couple more elements in it than it did initially. You know, beyond fifty years ago, uh, and uh, initially it was just power generation and flood control. Those are the two elements, and for the last 50 or so years, those uh, interests have been very fine-tuned in terms of that uh, joint shared use of the water in the Columbia Basin. And uh, in the last number of years, there's uh, been a real interest in uh, ecological values. Uh, the, the creation of the, the dams and the reservoirs under the Columbia River Treaty uh, was quite devastating uh, in terms of uh, the ecology. The I guess over over many 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 millennia, the 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 basin had evol evolved into intact ecological areas that supported uh, a very large variety of plants, animal species, and of course the human humans. Uh, uh, certainly had an interest and in, in, in lived in those areas. So that's the challenge is to, to uh, introduce ideas about how can we improve the health of uh, the e ecological areas within the basin that are affected by the, uh, the reservoirs and, and, the, and the flow of the waters in the river. Uh, how can we do that? How can we measure it? How can we monitor it? And in 
and how can we, in the same way that we fine-tuned uh, flood control and and uh, power generation, how can we do that for ecology and get those benefits of a of a of a healthy environment? So a lot of other lot of things, and of course, there's a in, in Canada and the United States. There's also that element of uh, indigenous rights, uh, and uh, those were not considered at all since uh, since the treaty was signed. So, but they are now. The uh, the First Nations have uh, been recognized in the Constitution with regard to their 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 rights. So our rights are confirmed and uh, affirmed within the Constitution of, of the country, and we've had many. Uh, court cases through the Supreme Court, where uh, we've been able to show legally that all of the instruments that the, the government claimed to have extinguished our rights did not extinguish our rights at all. So we're standing here today as Indigenous people with rights that are recognized in the Constitution and rights that are recognized through the uh, Supreme Court. and. Uh, also, the 2016 Canada adopted the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and those articles are very, very profound in terms of uh, reconciliation uh, and how are, how we are going to what what are some of the challenges that we have to meet with regard to uh, number one, I guess the the recognition within the Columbia River Treaty of uh, the right of Indigenous people to self-determination. We live in the basin and we have a right to be self-determining as people. And we also have rights to uh, the land and resources that weren't recognized originally, but are now. So it's a, there's a, the, the articles are, are very, very clear in terms of First Nations having the right to uh, conserve and protect the natural resources within their traditional areas, uh, the right to develop and own and use traditional territories, uh, the right to redress, like for the last many generations, the, the uh, Columbia River Treaty, the dams, and the reservoirs have been really the largest infringement on indigenous rights that ever was. Incredible changes have been brought about by the uh, by the construction of the dams and the and the use of the reservoirs. So we, we've moved over time from sort of being ignored, and uh, to now we have a voice that. Uh, must be recognized and is being recognized. We have, uh, we're being consulted on, you know, like where I'm being asked, what do you think about this, this, and this? We're actually, uh, and I think you probably have known this, is that we've been invited into that space for negotiation. So we sit at the main Canada-US table and we, we have a, a presence there as observers. And uh, we've been able to, uh, expand the observation piece to actually 
being an active participant in the discussions uh, at, at that table. And I, I guess one of the big pieces that uh, is a challenge to everyone is that the uh, under the United Nations Declaration, uh, Article 19, it says that uh, governments must uh, get the free prior and informed consent of First Nations or Indigenous people before they move on to these large agreements to, before they sign them. So that's something that we've, it's there and uh, uh, certainly a different, a different role for it in Indigenous people. Uh, we have many interests that are, are being put forward uh, by by our our side because that's I think only we can determine what our interests are our rights are and so the the notion that we are the first peoples in the in the Columbia base is, is beyond question we've been there for thousands of years and uh, have have lived in those areas very successfully and uh, we have uh, quite a quite a collection of knowledge and information about the use of uh, the resources the plants the animals the birds the, uh, yeah so there's uh, over a hundred species of animals that we use so there's uh, over a hundred species of plants that we use for medicines and we had uh, places where we we occupied uh, and just in terms of living, uh, our villages, we have uh, particular spots for, for, for fishing and uh, medicine gathering, access to, to different parts of the territory. And uh, all of those have been uh, impacted uh, by the existence of the reservoirs and the, the dams. So a lot to reconcile the uh, the salmon uh, for for all nations all the way from the top to the bottom of the Columbia basin were so important both on on the US side and the Canadian side it was sort of the the lifeblood of of uh, those communities uh, everywhere so certainly uh, that's an area of, of a, a real prime area of interest is how do we get this salmon back? It's a it's a challenge that's been there for quite a while, and uh, of course that's where we require quite a bit of coordination between the U.S. and Canada because uh, the dams in the U.S. of course don't permit uh, the passage of salmon upstream, and uh, although they're working on that. And of course, uh, that's that's half of the equation. And the other the other interest is how do we successfully get the young salmon down to the ocean again uh, once once they spawned in, in the various places and all kinds of challenges about the environment that exists now as a result of the, the dams and how we can actually successfully uh, have salmon uh, thrive again in, in the system. So. And I think that that's the that's the crux of of our 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 interests as Indigenous people is 
how do we get those interests on the table and in, in some significant way agreed to within the, the, the renewed Columbia River Treaty? So, so we've lots of, uh, certainly for me, it's been a, a quite a learning curve. The, uh, there are so many details when you, when you get down to the details of operating plans, well, one year, five year, uh, and then uh, how do you actually do the planning that will get us what we want? And that's, I think, a big part of the, the Canada-US discussions. The, uh, the relationship that we have with the US tribes is, is, is very positive, especially around uh, salmon. Uh, for a number of years, we've had uh, conferences and workshops uh, about how to how to reintroduce salmon. So we share a lot of information, and of course, we have a we have a, a very similar approach uh, to dealing with land and resources, where we we recognize the value of having those natural resources and have an obligation and responsibility to ensure the health of the uh, ecological areas, salmon, wildlife, plants, and people. So uh, there's we have continued discussions about, in a renewed treaty, how can the uh, indigenous people continue to support one another in, in either formal or less formal ways, but we know that that we're going to continue to have these relationships if we're going to be and if we're going to be successful in, in meeting our objectives working together is certainly the the best way to go thank you for for that and let me ask you when 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 we think about ecological health when we think about the rights of the indigenous people and reconciling these things you know is there can you imagine a world in which the dam continues to exist, um, but also the salmon, you know, you talked about the flows of salmon going both ways. Is, you know, you said you're working on that. Is, is there, do you feel like there's a way to get there um, that's short of uh, kind of undoing the dam altogether? Like, is it, can those things live together? And is that part of the negotiation? It's certainly a, uh... Uh, a part of the negotiation, uh, the salmon part, and uh, actually the salmon are under a different plan. It's the Columbia River Salmon Reintroduction uh, Initiative, and that's uh, uh, governments in in uh, Canada, BC, and and First Nations uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans have come together to see what they can do to reintroduce salmon into the Canadian side of, of the border. And uh, so there's there's a lot of planning that's going in there, just to what, what, what's the potential now? And uh, uh, they have a strategy for that. They've got a lot of science happening. And of course, there, there have been initiated discussions with the US uh, side to uh, see what's necessary on that side in order to get salmon to the border and then back and forth. So, yeah, uh, so that's that's still there. We know that if we can get the salmon sort of over the dams and in the U.S. and Canada, there's a we have some uh, considerable potential 
uh, to have salmon salmon reintroduced into the system north of the north of the uh, border. So, uh, looking positively at it, there's a lot of challenges, and it's certainly uh, a topic of discussion, sort of on on a bigger picture as well. Well, uh, Mr. Nathan, let me ask you this question in a slightly different way. I hope I can do this without seeming to just rely on sort of colonial uh, names, but can you talk a little bit about your geography? Where are you in the world? And and where are you in relation to what we call the Columbia River? So that people have a sense sort of on the map, uh, how you're situated. I think that's something that doesn't always come through for people who aren't map people. Just uh, the Sahuaban people or the, the first the indigenous people in general? Uh, start start with your community and, and maybe some of the other communities in relation to the Columbia River uh, treaty group that you were talking about. It maybe just as a starting point. Yeah, with the with the Columbia River Treaty, the, the Sahuam people have traditional territory in the basin and uh, uh, from uh, south of Revelstoke, if you know where that is, uh, down toward the border, up and around the Big Bend area into the Invermere, uh, Windermere areas. So we're in the upper reaches of the, uh, of the Columbia River. And uh, the uh, we have one uh, main Sahuaban community there, and that's the, the Shushuap Indian Band. So they are in the basin, mm -hmm. and uh, the Sinh people that, that who I represent uh, have traditional territory in the Big Bend area and north to the small village of Valmont, and mm -hmm. that's the. It takes in the, the, all of the Kinbasket Reservoir area, which is the biggest uh, reservoir in in the series of dams. So uh, that's uh, certainly we have uh, tradition. We've got occupation sites. We've got archaeological sites. We've got uh, we still have sort of relationships to the land in in that area. So yeah, that's a uh, and and the the. Silks or Okanagan also have uh, interest in the area, and of course the Tanaka uh, have interests in, in the, the Columbia and, and the Kootenai River system. So, now as that gets close to the uh, Canada-U.S. border, are there um, related communities, cousins, other groups that are actually on the U.S. side that are, and are they as involved as as you are on the Canadian side? Uh, well, certainly the the Silks people go right down into the United States. So there's the same group, the same uh, affiliation right right through the Okanagan and into into the uh, Washington. So they've they've got family relations. they've got uh, now they've got they're extending certain rights uh, to the era for those that are living in the United States. And uh, the the Tonaka as well, they have uh, their tribal group, or the, their nation extends into the United States. So they've got you sort of a U.S. Uh, side and a Canadian side. So there's a good reason for 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 talking in in a, what we call a one river yeah. idea. Is that it's one river? Let's look at it that way. And uh, despite it might be chopped up with the border with Canada, the US and the tribal areas and, and the states, but it's, uh, we're looking at it as one, 
one one being. And in the negotiation, just to, just to clarify, are there asymmetrical rights, or is there a sense that your U.S. Uh, indigenous community relations folks that they're less at the table than you are, or have the two federal governments structured this in such a way that everyone has a voice? I guess because we do Canada-U.S. relations, I'm, I'm always interested in the comparison. Yeah, well, in Canada, certainly uh, we've been provided a voice all the way up and down the line in all, all the committee work, all of the planning, the strategies, and all the discussions we're part of. We can freely take uh, take part in and contribute. So uh, that's something that we, we didn't have at the beginning, but we negotiated that. And uh, we're... we're uh, we're very glad that we we have that voice, you know, that it's being recognized. Uh, I can't say too much about the United States. I know that uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, delegation includes the U.S. tribes. They they, uh, they as far as I know, they're advisors. Uh, so that's uh, there. I think there is a difference formally uh, because uh, in the United States they have treaties. And in BC, we don't. So there's a, there's a slightly different uh, perspective, I think, taken there. And certainly the laws of the land uh, in, in the United States, and this is I'm on pretty soft ground here, <laughs> uh, yeah, with regard to salmon and uh, environmental issues, species at risk, uh, they have those elements that uh, the laws protect resources, salmon, and such. And there are treaties about salmon. So that's a, it's a different, different environment uh, altogether. And, and I, I believe that the tribes have uh, relationships with the bodies that provide governance uh, over the, uh, the U.S. portion of uh, the Columbia River Basin. So there's... This is so fascinating. I, what I'd like to ask you is, you, you've been through a lot of negotiations in your day. Um, I'd love to ask you, on, based on your experience and, and your thoughts, how, how optimistic are you that the Columbia River Treaty negotiations will be completed successfully from your point of view over the next couple of years? So that's part A of the question. The other part is, how does this compare? Like, what's the with 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 other negotiations through the course of your career? I understand that the things are different now with with Canadian reconciliation efforts and all of this. But if you could, if you a, how optimistic are you that this gets concluded satisfactorily and within a you know next couple of years? And b, how does this compare with other um, other negotiations you've seen? Oh. Yeah, it's it's hard to compare, but uh, we've been we've been fairly uh, successful in the, in the last couple of years of uh, First Nations or Indigenous people being able to get some of their rights exercised in terms of uh, participating in, in much the same way of talking about uh, natural resources, whether it be mining, whether it be forestry, whether it be commercial recreation, that sort of thing within our territories. So. It's, uh, it's a lot more, uh, I guess, balanced in our mind 
Although we still have some way to go, we're, we're currently negotiating uh, significant forestry agreements, um, mining agreements, energy agreements uh, around the province. And some of them are, they're being agreed to and inked in and uh, negotiated by First Nations and uh, the benefits and the responsibilities for shared decision-making are becoming real. So it's taken a long time. And with the Columbia River Treaty, uh, in terms of time, I, I, I thought it was going to move along quite quickly <laughs> in terms of, you know, identifying issues and coming to an agreement and, you know, like, yeah. uh, okay, and, well, and it's not, we'll it's meet not you halfway easy. here, or there. Yeah. but it's, uh, it's, it's, we're still moving, uh, I believe in terms of, uh, the, the, the value of that water as it moves from place to place and the challenge of getting beyond just the power generation and the flood control and that's how much value is there in uh protecting the environment uh, how much value is there in, in you know returning salmon uh, and how do you fine-tune the system to accommodate those interests and the, the uh, the indigenous uh, voice is also uh, something that's really uh, important to deal with uh, in terms of how do we fit into some future governance arrangement where we continue to have a voice in how the resources in our traditional territories are being used. And the water is a big one. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm optimistic or else I don't think I would be here. Uh, I'm optimistic that we're going to have some clarity. We're leading the we're leading the research and indigenous side in Canada is leading the research in ecological values. So we're taking a look at the rivers, the, the, the reservoirs, the streams, the, the plants and the animals and doing the research in terms of what do we think that it will take to make that environment or that ecological area healthier mm -hmm. through some way of changing the operations of the system. And that's the key thing. How do we change it from what it is now? And it's mainly, I guess, going back to flood control and power generation. How do we adjust the levels of the reservoirs to accommodate some interest? Like one of the big things for us, as we found out, is that we have uh, uh, burial sites, ar archaeological sites that have been eroded by mm -hmm. the wave action and up and down of the reservoirs. So how do we, is there anything that we can do to protect those areas right now? It's the same with the, the plant and animal species, the medicines and that sort of thing. How do we change the operation of the system to accommodate those interests? So we're doing, we're doing modeling right now. We've put, put these pieces into a computer, uh, develop a number of scenarios, run the computer, and then look just to say, okay, in order for, for us to have the health, healthy fish or birds or whatever, the water should be at this level, it should flow at that rate, it should be at that temperature, 
And so you put that in and compare that to what exists right now and what has to be changed. That's to me the big thing. And we're we're getting the science in line so that we can actually say this is how much we need, how much water we need for this purpose at this time, and then related to the water that flows over to the US border uh, at, in in real time throughout the year. Uh, another big issue is um, climate change. I mean, holy smoke, uh, <laughs> there's a, a huge body of water. And of course, there are many, many experts. And there's a lot of people concerned about that, just the change in the climate. And, and what does that mean for the water flows? Because we have glaciers that are melting and all, all of that and extreme weather events where uh, the, the flow of water is not the same as it was 20 years ago. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, being being uh, expanding the, the information base to accommodate those pieces is a challenge for for everyone. And uh, the big one of the big pieces is uh, uh, hydroelectric power. Where are the power electrical power needs into the future? So we have hydroelectric power, then we have nuclear power, and we've got wind power, and we've got solar power. And what are the needs and, and the patterns of use of people going forward? Because that'll drive a lot of the uh, the turning the dials on the on the levels of the water and that sort of thing. So that's a a very uh, critical piece to to think about. And of course, in, in BC we have other options around hydroelectric generation uh, that are that are that are being developed right now. So how does that impact the Columbia Basin, which provides a, a very significant part of uh, the power or hydroelectric power needs of of the citizens? Yes, it does. So, uh, uh, Mr. Matthew, I could tell that you're an educator because you're a very good explainer of things, and uh, and I know that's been a big part of your background. I guess I'm interested in a sort of practical uh, challenge, which is how are you preparing, I guess, the younger generation of of people in your First Nation to pick up the, the reins and be the next generation of negotiators? This is one of those things, and I can just tell that you've learned a lot uh, at the negotiating table from all the iterations of these experiences. So how do you prepare the next generation to be able to advocate for themselves and participate in processes like this Columbia River Treaty negotiation uh, to kind of learn from what you've done in the past and kind of build on that? Is there is that something that you're apprenticing people or do you have a, an approach that uh, that you've taken? I'm really curious as, as to whether you're getting better and better at this. You know, we know uh, that's really important. And I don't think we're doing a, a as good a job as as we want to think, because uh, the like you we have a, a number of negotiators, and uh, uh, we have lots of negotiators in different areas. But uh, it takes a fair bit of time and and uh, thought uh, to uh, to participate effectively in this particular uh, negotiation. So yeah, we. We could be, uh, should be, training more uh, younger people to step in, and uh, what we know and we have the experience is that uh, the politics on our side is like like the general politics. It's we're democratically uh, elected, uh, and 
our politicians change, our leadership changes. And uh, we're going through that phase in the Sikhwab Nation now where a lot of uh, those that have been sitting at the tables for years are no longer there. It's just they're, they're, they're no longer there. And we have a lot of new people. So that's uh, one of the, I guess, important pieces that we, we know has to happen. It's just to keep the uh, representatives, the leadership, up to speed on what's going on because uh, there's a lot to consider, and it's uh, we are we are organized uh, in terms of a negotiation advisory team where the Canada, BC, BC Hydro, and, and the three in, Indigenous nations sit down under an agreement, and uh, we we have our commitment to work together, and uh, the way that we're going to uh, function. So we're quite organized that way, and. Uh, what we have to ensure is that those people sitting at those different tables are are oriented and brought up to speed in terms of what the current issues are. And we're moving into uh, uh, some new areas as well, which uh, in terms of governance, thinking about, well, how do we really want to be involved in this sort of stuff? <laughs> because it's, it's another layer of decision making. And do you want to just have your values in there and have some other people exercise implement them or do you want to have your hand on the wheel all the time that's capacity wise i think for uh, indigenous people it's something we have to think about well, hopefully some of the some of your young people and young people across canada will hear the podcast and get a sense of both how challenging it is but also how interesting and 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 really beneficial it can be to the community will inspire some folks who may not want to pick up a textbook but enjoy a podcast uh, that's 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 our audience across the continent yeah we have uh, we have salmon releases where we involve young people so they're they're there to witness and become uh, participate in in uh, salmon issues we've got uh, workshops and conferences that young people are now taking uh, uh, a role in, which uh, will lead, we believe, to, to good things. So, yeah. Well, you know, you uh, you raised so many interesting issues. And the, the last one, the question on governance, I, I think, is in your capacity uh, or first people's capacity to to be at the table and negotiating all of these things forevermore. That's a hadn't thought of that. Um, so just we're coming to the end of our time here and we're so grateful. I've got a selfish, selfish question I'd like to ask you, which is uh, based on your experience um, broadly, if you were to give Chris Sands and me advice about a topic that we should look at uh, for Canusa Street for this podcast, uh, what what might it be? Because the Columbia River Treaty is awfully important, and we'll we'll continue to talk about that. And we talk about all kinds of issues uh, that face Canada and the United States. But if you wanted to if if you wanted to put your two cents in, what would what would you ask us to look at? Well, uh, I, uh, I'm just speaking for what I would be interested in. Yeah, and that and that's uh, more information about the approach that the United States is taking to environmental protection, uh, preservation, and uh, sort of that whole ecological uh, footprint that's that's there as a result of uh, the dams. And, uh, you know, what, what plans do, do, do the governments have there? And uh, without getting into anything uh, deeper than that, because that's going to determine 
over time, I think, the, the extent to which we can get these new issues introduced in a formal fashion, because it has to be nailed down quite, quite uh, uh, precisely in terms of the functioning of that uh, water system and what accommodation is there to ecological interests is uh, is going to be a, one of the big things because we it's balanced by probably getting less power and maybe a little more flood risk as a result of attending to these other interests you know i i love that suggestion and actually i think it i think it applies not only to the columbia river basin but i think we could uh, explore how the U.S. in particular, but also Canada, approaches uh, these environmental and ecological issues right across uh, the Boundary Waters. You know, the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909, as Professor Sands will tell us, uh, established a lot of um, the ways we look at how we govern our border. It's, you know, the Canada-U.S. border, I think, is 40 percent water. Right. So uh, so I like that suggestion a lot. And and let me just say how grateful we are to you for joining us today. I, I learned a lot. I hope I hope you'll continue to, to um, be willing to talk talk with us from time to time uh, over the next few years as this negotiation and others uh, move forward. But let me just on behalf of Chris Sands and, and our listeners uh, just say thank you and, and how grateful we are to you. I'll, I'll cook stem. Thank you for for inviting me. I I, I always enjoy a, a, an opportunity to uh, talk about our issues because I think they're not that well known, uh, especially out of, outside of our country. So uh, yeah, well, thank you for this and what you're doing in terms of public public education. I think is really great. Well, I thank you, and you're right. These issues aren't well known, and and I like to say what I don't know about these things could fill an encyclopedia. So thank goodness for Chris Sands, who knows a lot, <laughs> and asks good questions. So we're we're glad to uh, to be in this journey together. Scotty is a flatterer, uh, but I think in your case, uh, she's actually accurate. So thank you very much, Mr. Matthew. Really appreciate your time. Well, I keep learning, Chris. I love, I love learning. I, and it's so easy to do in a podcast format. I mean, where were podcasts when you and I were coming along? I don't know. I, I don't think I would read books about treaties, um, but talking to people, listening to people, especially somebody as, as informed and thoughtful as the chief, I think it was just uh, terrific. I, I agree. And I, I think one of the things that's been interesting about the Columbia River Treaty series of podcasts we've done, and for listeners who are just listening to this one, go back. We've had some really good ones so far on this topic is that each person we've interviewed has brought a very different perspective, which of course is normal, but they see this in a different way. And Nathan Matthew kind of brought uh, the whole rich history of First Nations, Canada, the United States, American indigenous communities together in this moment while also looking forward to what may be coming around the corner. These issues are complex. At the surface, you can say, okay, it's a treaty, it's about power, it's about flood control. But the, the, the human connection to these agreements, the fact that Canada-US relations is not just 
this high level uh, friendship, but that it, it gets into the nitty gritty. It gets down to the street level, including the Canusa street level, where, uh, where it really matters in daily lives of people. And I think it's one of the really great things about this podcast is, is being able to get to people um, and get that perspective. It's just, you can't beat it and you can't substitute a textbook for it, as you said. Well, that's right. And you know, the other thing that strikes me is if you and I were, were having this discussion even five or six years ago, um, I don't know that the First Nations perspective would be automatically included, right? Mm -hmm. And e not just for this discussion at Columbia River, but remember the podcast we did on the Carbon Hub proposal in Alberta, which by the way, since we had that podcast, that proposal was approved, was green-lighted. Uh, oh, and yeah, and we had a First Nations uh, tribal leader uh, on that podcast, as well as the corporate folks talking about, you know, his partnership and what that means for his particular nation. And so, um, th this is, this is new for old folks like you and me, and it's, um, maybe well overdue, but I'm glad, I'm glad we are continuing to have these voices and, uh, and we'll continue to do so. Well, and it's the power of um, podcasting technology that allows us to connect to people on the other side of the continent and, and, give give them a voice that they wouldn't have had if we had had to be intrepid reporters on the ground with a microphone and a tape recorder. So I know that's going to make me sound old, but uh, you talk about five years ago, 10 years ago, we wouldn't have even had the technology. So uh, maybe it's bringing us together in a small way. And that's a great thing. Well, that's exactly right. And so we will we will continue to come up with hopefully interesting and illuminating uh, items to discuss on Canusa Street. And, and I, I look forward to continuing the conversation, my friend. It's always fun. Me too. Looking forward to the next time we'll be back on Canusa Street, Scotty. All right. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.